Memoirs of a Mackenzie Friend is sponsored by IamLIP.com. Trigger warning. Memoirs of a Mackenzie Friend deals with the subject of divorce, child custody, domestic abuse, the attitude of public bodies and the family court. Some people may find the content of this episode distressing. Some episodes contain explicit language. My name is Selena. Who am I? I am white, I am black, I am brown, and I am much, much more. I'm a Christian, I'm a Hindu, I'm a Buddhist, I'm a Sikh, I'm a Muslim, I am Catholic, and human to the core. I am every person who did what they were supposed to do, leave and tell. I am every person who was re-abused by the system. I am every person who was disbelieved by the police before I even began to speak my truth. I am every person who faced an unaccountable family court only to be silenced by their orders. I am Anonymous Us and here are our stories. This episode of Memoirs of a Mackenzie Friend is a triple episode covering 25, 26 and 27. I tried to do this in three separate episodes and it didn't work because of what I wanted to say and the fact that I do have to keep coming back to the points I'm making in order for what I'm explaining to make sense. However, what I have done is included some segment breaks should you feel you need five minutes or to go grab a drink. So welcome to this triple episode titled How Did We Get to a Stage Where? Now, before I move on to what occurs once a litigant's hearing actually begins in the family court, and I know I've been trying to start that for the last 25 episodes, and I have touched upon a few in-hearing incidents with judgestrates, and I promise we're nearly there. Well, sort of. But what can I do? There's so much to understand regarding what happens leading up to the start of a hearing. And as you have seen, not just with the litigant circumstances, but with the setup of the family court itself. So, with that in mind, I still have a few more points to make concerning the workplace culture of our family courts. Particularly, how did we get to a stage where certain behaviours such as verbally abusing a member of the public, lying to an MP, missing paperwork, is not seen as concerning to court management and more so judicial administration. So what does that mean for the rest of the hearing? Why has this been allowed to develop in the first place? And what are the dangers of allowing it to continue and deepen? So, what do we know about the family courts? their procedures and staff behaviour so far. Put quite simply, it's frightening. That's what we do know. In the last few episodes, and at the end of series one, we saw what happens to LIPs and victim survivors when going to court, such as the lack of explanation or guidelines of what to do when someone first arrives at court, not knowing where to sign in, the fact that an LIP is automatically expected to know what the procedures are, what the arrival procedures are. Then we looked at some of the attitudes they face, 
such as staff's attitude to special measures, not feeling safe in the building, and huffing and puffing when questions are asked. Then, there are the incidents that have occurred, not just to them personally, but their cases too. Missing paperwork, lack of communication from the court, bundle abuse. I'll get to bundle abuse in the next episode. Then, we touched upon why these things happen. There's staffing conditions, staff's workplace culture, but most of all bad management. And that's the crux of what this extended episode will be about. Really honing in on bad leadership practices, their attitude, their disconnect, and how that then filters down setting standards for frontline staff's behaviour, the type we saw when it came to Sally's missing paperwork and the response to her complaint letter. This lack of adequate senior leadership, it's not simply about causing little inconveniences that eventually sort themselves out. It's more. This lack of effective leadership allows dangerous behaviours and attitudes to fester, become out of control and start to feel normalised. When did being called a fucking bitch by an enabler become normal? When did paperwork going missing yet the hearings continue become normal? And a word of warning, I will keep bringing up the issue of the missing paperwork. And not just because I'm being repetitive, but it's to really drive home how serious, how significant this is, especially when it comes to a fair hearing and not just in the family court. Any civil court, the criminal court. Because if it's happening in one segment, then I bet you it is happening in other areas, other segments of our courts. None of what I have described so far should be seen as normal, yet it has been normalised. And it needs to be acknowledged and tackled for the sake of victim survivor LIPs. And I'm not saying that those who don't come under the category of LIP or victim survivor don't also face hostile and corrupt courts. But any improvements that come from what I am highlighting to the world at large will benefit the situation for everyone as well. Make the family courts fair all round. One of the hardest things about advocating for a better family court system are the barriers that stop litigants from having full and frank conversations about what is happening to them. Because firstly, it's illegal to talk about family law cases. Restrictions come not only from statute, but also in many cases. You are court-ordered into silence, gagged by the judge. And why do these restrictions occur? Well, because there are usually minors involved. So these restrictions are to protect them to protect their anonymity, as they get very little say in what is happening within their home environment. So the core reason for these restrictions is correct, and something I wholeheartedly agree with, if the family court's legal structure was fair and solely used to protect minors and vulnerable families. But how did we get to a stage where children and their custody is weaponised to threaten and control the vulnerable parent? I'm asking the judiciary a serious question. So they are further scared, on top of everything else that they are experiencing, into not speaking or advocating for themselves or their children, as judges often threaten this parent with the loss of custody. We saw this happen to Sally. When she challenged the judge on his decision to continue the hearing, despite her missing paperwork, he threatened to have her children removed. In particular, Emily, who was 11 at the time. 
So, judicial restrictions and repercussions are why victim survivors rarely feel safe telling their story to the world. And if they do, it has to be anonymous. They find themselves having to leave out specific details, harrowing details, so they cannot be identified. Therefore, they can only give a surface-level account and have to keep it general. For example, they can only say things like, The judge didn't listen. The judge was rude. The judge said he'd give custody of my children to the abuser. Many litigants are so petrified, so terrified, that they are scared to reveal even the most minor detail in case of any identifiers. So the likes of Sally never get to tell their story in full, the actual horror of what was said and done to them. And the general public never hears the full extent of their experiences. And in the end, it sounds like they're moaning just because the judge didn't see it their way. Now, here's something that bothers me. If the judiciary and those involved with family law are saying restrictions are all about the children, how do you account for the lack of voice from Holly, where children are not involved? How did it get to a stage where they have also been silenced? In these kind of cases, they are also too fearful of speaking out because of personal and legal reprisals, as they learn very quickly that they are on their own. No agency, whether the police or the judiciary, will be protecting them. Non-molestation orders mean nothing and can be broken with no action taken, as what happened to Holly, and Sally for that matter. They are also silenced in fear of judgments going against them, especially if these victim survivors do not behave. A. In a particular way that makes them the perfect victim. And B. Pleases the judge's own personal disposition. They will then be punished with unfavourable judgments against them. Let me tell you my story because it happened to me. I was speaking for myself, something that you would think is a no-brainer, considering I was a litigant in person. I said something that the judge took umbrage at. I wasn't rude and I didn't say anything against the judge. I just simply explained the emotional ramifications of what was happening to me and the children and why I needed them to do something to help. And in response, the judge made a decision, teach me a lesson for speaking up that put every member of me and my family in grave danger. And it's a shame I can't be more specific than that. Identifiers. So, after that, I became silent. Prior to this, I had too complained about the court administration, about their lack of care looking after my case, as I often used to walk into hearings with my applications missing. Missing in inverted commas. Personally, I would use the word removed. Yet, for some reason, his applications were always there, always there for the judge to discuss, consider and agree to his demands, no matter how unreasonable, no matter how not in the best interest of the children they were. So, after the complaint went to the court, which I regret wholeheartedly, because after that, their treatment of me, my case, my paperwork, was off the scale. So, I became agreeable, and it was only once I did that things calmed down on the administration side. Anyway, carrying on with regards to LIP victim survivors being silenced. If your abusive partner has learnt the power and the joys of vexatious litigation, and if this abuser is a repeat offender, they'll drag you back to court again and again, 
and if any children are involved, and say one is still a toddler, it can be up to 15 years before you're free of the courts. Which brings us to the secondary reason people are unable to tell of their experiences. If they are continually going to be dragged back to court, that means they're continually gagged. Because in the meantime, if they have spoken out, any judgistrate is not going to take too kindly to the victim survivor having spoken out. And if they are being dragged back to court again and again and again, who do and who can they tell in order to put a stop to this legal abuse? Who do they highlight it to? Who do they whistleblow to? And no, they can't tell the papers. The law has made sure of that. I have seen loads of articles on the family court, loads of advocates speaking out on social media, but so much has to be held back that what you hear, it's not even the tip of the iceberg. Do you know something? No, not no. Imagine. Imagine up to 15 years. That's a long time to live in silence and fear. And that doesn't even include the time spent in the actual relationship and all the other avenues of post-separation abuse. So by the time they get to a stage where they're able to tell their story, they don't have what it takes. They've lived with it for so long. They just need to move on. Normality needs to kick in. They need to put all of this behind them. And that's if their mental health, not just for themselves, but their children is still intact. If all the events haven't finally taken their toll and is tearing every part of their soul apart. Would you have what it takes to tell your story? Or would you just pick up the pieces and with your children just carry on with your life? I know what would be the kindest thing to choose. So, coming back to the question I asked a bit earlier. How is what happens to a victim survivor LIP at the early stages before their hearing even begins? How has all of this been normalised into everyday behaviour? How has every victim of the family court, regardless of situation, regardless of children involved, is silenced? Therefore, getting public momentum behind family law changes is near impossible therefore making sure the courts remain secret and unaccountable, and therefore are allowed to keep continuing with what they are doing, and therefore it becomes normal. Yeah, justice, envy of the world. So the next point I want to make with regards to what happens during the pre-hearing stage how not knowing what is about to happen to them and how the system works affects a victim-survivor LIP's ability to advocate for themselves. Because many people do not know about the realities of the family court, anyone entering the system is a sitting duck. Not one person goes in ready for what they are capable of doing to you. The common myth is that you walk into and start steps with the family court thinking that this is where everything will get sorted out Everyone will be professional and knowledgeable and will understand everything that is happening. You will be believed. Finally. And then reality kicks in. The court admin are incompetent and corrupt. Judges are ill-informed. Judges have no clue what has happened to victim survivors within their relationship and what has led them and why they are in court that day in front of them asking for help. They do not understand that third party inaction is in no way a reflection of a case's reality or the victim survivor's honesty and integrity. But most of all, 
most magistrates will refuse to ask how one party has become a litigant in person while the other side has a legal team, yet the legal team are being paid for out of the family finances, the marital finances, and yet these finances belong to both. 11 out of 11 hearings, not one judgestrate, not one single solitary judgestrate asked, inquired, acknowledged. And once this nightmare begins and you realise that you are fucked, any which way you turn, you are fucked. It's at that point you realise that this is going to be hard to get out of, especially when the solicitors and barristers sniff out how much money there is to fleece from the family finances. Because at that point, they genuinely believe that your family finances is theirs for the taking and they are the ones entitled to it. And from that point on, they will pull every stunt under the sun to make sure that they keep the legal bills accumulating. And until you see it, experience it and have supported someone through it, even in your wildest dreams, you will never call it in terms of how bad, how unprofessional, how corrupt the family court and the family law legal sector is. No, sorry, let me rephrase. How secret, how corrupt and how well controlled the sector is. And it has nothing to do with protecting the children. Once I get to episode 31, you'll see the courts wanting to do right by the children is a crock of shit. It's all been designed to keep the status quo the same. It is about keeping the multi-million pound gravy train for the legal profession going. So, I'll repeat, pre-hearing, victim survivor LIPs, in fact, any type of litigant, hasn't got a clue about what they're really walking into. So they come unprepared for the attitude they face, yet full of hopes and dreams. And once they are knocked sideways, they never really find a way of standing up because once they are down, the punches will keep coming. And trust me, as someone who's been there, you cannot advocate while you remain in a state of shock, on the floor, in the fetal position, while every person in the legal profession is punching and kicking any little space they can find on your body. From day one, they will do everything in their power to make sure that you are unable to advocate for yourself. You have now reached a segment break, should you need it. Segment 2 Now, coming back to the question of why it is hard to get public momentum behind understanding what happens in the family court, apart from being silenced, that is. I know from experience that when you try and tell people this is what happens in the family court, they don't believe you. Not because they think you're a liar, they don't believe it. Because what they hear seems so unfathomable. I mean, these are the type of things that happen in heightened legal dramas. The type that Julia Roberts stars in. The type that Michael Crichton writes. Shonda Rhimes produces. It's the stuff of fiction. It's the stuff of Hollywood. This doesn't happen in our world, on a wet and dull day in Snaresbrook or Bury St Edmunds or Barnet or St Helens or Grantham or anywhere else. This doesn't happen to ordinary everyday people who shop in Aldi and watch EastEnders. 
This doesn't happen in our countries where we have rights. And then everyone thinks they know best. No, no, the courts are not that bad. It's just you're not handling it properly. And despite myself never going anywhere near the family court under the circumstances you are in, let me give you some advice and tell you how to deal with it. Which will then lead on to lots of, yeah, but surely you should, but surely you could have, well, couldn't you, couldn't you, wouldn't you, didn't you? Yep, lots of well-meaning suggestions that mean nothing in practice. And what you want to say to these people is, do you really think that those people who have come before haven't said or done anything, everything they could to bring these injustices to the surface? Every past litigant has just sat there, doing nothing, waiting all these years for you to come along with all your, well, couldn't you just? These litigants are so busy fighting the courts that they really don't have what it takes to take you well-meaning advice givers on as well. So they just stay quiet because the last thing they need is more headache. And this is why I've brought this up now whilst talking about pre-hearing. Forget what you've heard so far. What you are going to go on to hear about what happens in hearings will be horrifying, disturbing it will be the stuff of nightmares. I kid you not. And I don't want you to spend your time focusing on being a backseat advisor of why the litigant isn't doing this, trying that, spending your mental energy going somewhere that's futile. I need you to listen to what's coming up with the caveat of knowing that there is no solution. I need you to understand that when a judge tells a victim survivor to shut up, there will be no solution. I need you to understand that when a judge tells a victim survivor that they deserved their good beating because they seem like a nag, there will be no solution. I need you to understand that when a judge turns around to the abuser and asks, is she intelligent? Oh yes, and the word she will be said in the most dehumanising tone. And when the abuser says no, and the judge says to him, hmm, didn't think so, there will be no solution. When something unacceptable and disrespectful in an application, such as asking for permission to write to the victim survivor's former colleagues, to ask their opinion on her personality and her earning potential when trying to settle the finances, and you think, what a silly thing. What are the law firm thinking? Surely they can't be serious. There is absolutely no way hell on earth any judge would agree to that. No law would allow for that. And then the judge allows it. I need you to understand that there will be no solution, no comeback, no protection. You need to know what they are walking into pre-hearing because they won't, not until they are in the court's grasp. Then there will be no one to tell. There is no one to tell. No complaints department. No writing to their boss. Oh, forget the appeals process, the legal ombudsman. Been there, done that. This is it. What happens to them is full and final. And the courts aren't changing. All they do is sit there waiting for a fresh supply of naive victim survivors to terrorise, abuse and financially bleed dry. In the vast majority of cases, once a judge says or does something, it stands. And we're here. 
one of the final pieces of the puzzle that gives us a full picture of what is waiting for a victim-survivor LIP in the family court. And that's bad management, bad management practices and bad senior leadership on the administration side. And the thing I always say when I speak about this as part of my advocacy is, what can we look at and learn from these incidences? The truth? We can't. When we, as in the world at large, are not allowed to know about what happens in the family court and do not understand the full extent of the problem, when the enormity of what occurs is unfathomable, how can we get the momentum to ask for change? And what change do we ask for? Simply saying, we need a route to branch overhaul isn't good enough. What I do say, we can draw a lot of knowledge from what we are currently learning with regards to what's happening with the police at present. Recently, a lot has come to light about the realities of the police force, its cultures and its attitude to certain crimes, such as domestic abuse, sexual assault, rape, racism, more so in the wake of the Sarah Everard murder and the Pandora's box of bad behaviour that this opened. Now, the one thing that I want to make clear is that I'm not talking about individual officers, of which there are many good and committed ones. What this is about is systematic institutional attitudes. I mentioned Sarah Everard a few moments earlier, and in order to say what I want to say about the family court's systematic institutional culture and what we can learn by comparing it to the police, I need to start here. For those of you who may not be familiar with or may not have heard of this case because you might not be listening from the UK, here is a brief background. On the 3rd of March 2021, 33-year-old Sarah Everard was abducted from a busy South London street. She was raped, murdered and then her body set alight, with the man responsible being a serving police officer by the name of Wayne Cousins. It was late evening and Sarah was walking home after visiting a friend nearby when she was stopped and arrested by Cousins for breaking Covid legislation. He had used his status as a serving police officer and the fact that he had a warrant card as a ruse to arrest her and get her into his car. Sarah's rape and murder and the knowledge that the perpetrator was a serving police officer sent shockwaves through British society. Many questions were asked, eventually focusing on senior leadership and systematic institutional workplace culture. The first set of questions focused around the fact that Wayne Cousins was a serving police officer. Now, the one thing I am going to do, I'm going to continue using the term serving police officer because in many quarters and by the police themselves, Cousins was referred to as a former police officer. But on the night of Sarah's abduction, he was a serving police officer. And when it comes to justice, when it comes to understanding, terminology matters. So, not only was Wayne Cousins a serving police officer, but it was the type of serving police officer that caused concerns. He was part of the civil nuclear constabulary, but more importantly, or should I say more worryingly, he was a firearms officer. In the UK, where police officers do not carry firearms routinely, so this type of role will be seen as highly specialised. 
and to be selected, a thorough report would have had to have been completed to ensure an officer is suitable to carry a firearm. There would have been vetting, an analysis of temperament, critical thinking skills and how cool-headed they are, making sure that an officer is not trigger-happy. There would have been an evaluation of mental health and any past professional misdemeanours or concerns. There should have been and would have been the whole kit and caboodle of background checks. Now, it's easy to say that Cousins passed the test at the time with the information available and that there was nothing to suggest that he was a danger or that he could go on to commit such a crime. However, that turned out not to be the case. There had been many incidences to suggest that indeed he was a danger, which should have served as red flags that he could potentially commit a sexual offence. Cousins indeed had a reputation. His nickname amongst colleagues on the force was The Rapist, which wasn't a secret nickname between close colleagues and friends, but was known far and wide within the stations he worked in. So when senior police officers say that they did not know of his nickname, many do not accept this as a truthful answer. This nickname of The Rapist was used openly in and around the stations he worked in. There had also been several allegations against Cousins in which he had exposed himself to women, not just in his current position at the London Metropolitan Police, the Met, but in his previous position with the Kent Constabulary. It transpired that the Kent Police had not taken any action, neither had the Met, when complaints of Cousins exposing himself were made. Two different police forces separate complaints and unless the same person is on duty 24-7 would have been made to different officers. How is that not an institutional failure? After Cousins' arrest, female police officers spoke confidentially at their unease when they were working around him. In a nutshell, there had always been cause for concern with Cousins and his previous behaviour and it is felt by those that are trying to hold the police accountable that the more his behaviour was ignored, dismissed and covered up, the more empowered he became. So, the answers being demanded were, and still are, how was he able to remain a serving police officer, never mind the positions he was able to hold? Who was doing the vetting? How was the vetting taking place? When Cousins was reported for indecent exposure, who took the complaint? How was their complaint taken down, handled, assigned, investigated, dismissed and closed? Was he even spoken to? Once the media began looking into Cousins and how these allegations were missed, more concerning information came to light about the force overall. Now, let's make one thing clear. There are many good police officers who do not and would not engage in bad workplace culture and are disgusted that a man like Cousins has brought their profession and themselves as serving officers into question. And this, what I'm talking about right now, isn't about individual officers being good or bad. It's about the overall workplace culture and the senior management structure that they work within and how they bear responsibility regarding what Cousins went on to do. Why were concerns not taken seriously? And why wasn't the safety of his female colleagues taken seriously? As I said a little bit before, many female colleagues had stated that they felt uneasy with him, but many of these colleagues thought they couldn't come forward at the time. Police culture would not let them, as police officers seen snitching on another officer would be viewed dimly. 
and at some point the complainant punished and ostracised, even by senior officers. For example, if they were on a shout and got into trouble, their fellow officers, yeah, plural, officers, would not come to their aid to teach them a lesson for reporting their colleague. OK, one officer out of misplaced loyalty I can understand. Actually, no, I can't, but you get what I mean. But surely the others wouldn't have done this. So that means that there are a lot of people complicit in having allowed this man to stay on the force. The more you delve into it, the more horrifying it becomes. Then, the next set of concerning questions are about how easily he was caught. As in, he wasn't overly clever in covering his tracks. Wayne Cousins was arrested on the 9th of March, ten days after Sarah's abduction and nine days from when her boyfriend first reported her missing. And I don't know about anybody else, but this concerns me. How quickly the investigation found him and identified him for a police officer. Because for a police officer, he would have known how these crimes were investigated. He would have been party to previous investigations, know what an investigation team would be looking at. So you would think that he would be ahead of the game, especially when it comes to covering his tracks, how to avoid detection. Now, I'm no hardened criminal, but even I know that you do your damnedest not to get caught on CCTV when buying petrol to burn the body or at a hardware store buying items to dispose of her. Granted, he wasn't walking around with his name on his shirt, but he wasn't exactly going out of his way so he couldn't be detected for an existing police officer. He just seemed sloppy all round. He abducted Sarah openly on a main busy road, the A205. So for anyone who doesn't know or doesn't know London very well, that's the South Circular and that's part of a very busy main road that orbits London. Why there? Why not a quieter residential street as someone was heading towards their home? How did he get to a stage where he was that brazen, that emboldened? What caused that? So was he thinking, I don't need to be careful, I'll be fine. A simple case of a missing woman won't create much of a stir. Cases of women's safety never do. Is that why he didn't think the rest of it through? Because he didn't think it would get that much traction? Is this his way of saying that he knows the police don't bother looking at CCTV unless it's a high-profiled crime? And was it a case of he didn't expect this to become high-profiled because, well, she's only a woman? Or, more scarily, did he think he would get a free pass like all the other times? Or was it a case that the more his previous misdemeanours were overlooked, the more empowered he became? I remember all these questions being asked in the media, on talk radio, on talk shows, in the paper. But what was most obvious to me, it seemed that he had no thought of the consequences, as if he didn't expect to be caught. Or somehow the police force would overlook this because he was an officer. How do you get to that level of confidence where he didn't even cover his tracks adequately? It is also felt that if the previous complaints would have been investigated properly, this murder could have been prevented. Had he been dismissed for previous indecent exposure, he would not have been able to use his warrant card as a ruse to kidnap Sarah and get her into his car. Did this case show severe failures on the part of senior management? And when these questions are asked of senior leaders, 
they are shut down, there isn't and never was an initial problem, as if these type of questions being asked were somehow unfounded allegations and not genuine questions in order to clarify and understand and get answers to what was happening. Now, concern number three surround a vigil that was held in memory of Sarah. On Saturday the 13th of March, a vigil was organised by a group called Reclaim the Streets. It was held to remember Sarah, but also to come together to highlight many of the concerns about women's safety overall and the police's response and attitude to such incidents. Now this vigil took place during Covid restrictions and the police had done their utmost to try and stop it from going ahead. The mood of much of the nation was too strong not to go through with it. The anger of what many were finding out about the police force, their culture, their workplace culture, failures of senior leadership was running high. So therefore this vigil went ahead. The one thing I can say about this vigil, although it was passionate, it was peaceful. In the middle of this vigil, and I just want to say that I'm going to keep using the word vigil and not protest, because that's what it was. That's what it was to me. That's what it was to many people who were there or were supporting from afar. For some reason, the police became heavy-handed and began breaking it up. And personally, the police's manhandling of the many people that were there was completely unacceptable. This is the way I see it. If you wish to disperse a crowd, and you are a professional body, where I would say crowd control and keeping the peace is a part of your basic training, should be a part of your basic knowledge, should be a part of your basic understanding, then on a scale of 1 to 10, you try and disperse the crowd at 1, then 2, then 3. But in this instance, the police not only went straight to 10, they went straight to batshit. Something I'm starting to realise that people who feel powerful and enabled tend to do, whether it's enablers, security guards or the police. As far as I'm concerned, 10 and above is something you should never start with. In fact, you shouldn't even go there unless it's in response to a situation where you feel under attack. And even then, there are many things you can try first. I don't think it's unreasonable to ask. When the police did this, what was their protocol when needing to disperse a non-threatening crowd? What I want to do here is I want to look at the thought process of senior officers. The disconnect between the mood of those supporting the vigil and how the police reacted and the orders they gave to their officers. They didn't seem to understand why there was hurt, concern or anger. Why people felt, despite there being Covid restrictions, their need to turn up and give their support and their voice to what had happened. Senior police officers lacked the understanding that as far as many members of the public were concerned, some of their officers had got away with behaving terribly for so long that the most unacceptable behaviour had become normalised. And if this is their attitude and their thought process, an attitude in the light of Sarah's murder, then what kind of attitudes have or had filtered down to frontline officers prior to this? There will be a segment break here for anyone who wishes to take a break. Sarah's murder and the events surrounding it and immediately after shone a light on the entire UK police force and their work culture. 
It opened them up to scrutiny and it also opened up debates about the police. On a daily basis, harrowing details about the police's work culture were pouring out. Pandora's box had finally been opened. It transpired, serving police officers who had been accused of domestic violence by their partners were not investigated. The victims felt pressured to drop complaints and many of these complaints were shut down as it was colleagues and friends of the officers that were doing the investigating. And, out of the vast majority of those serving police officers who were found guilty of domestic violence, either kept their jobs and or were promoted. Which means one thing, the more you're promoted, the further up the chain of command you go, towards senior leadership. And of course, then that influences what trickles down to frontline staff. And the cycle continues. Then, certain officers deliberately targeted vulnerable women they had come into contact with as part of their job, as part of their investigations, who then attempted to contact them with a view to groom them to initiate sex. Most of these officers are also still in the force, if not promoted. Similar to cousins, when members of the public complained about serving officers' conduct, their concerns were not appropriately investigated. And then, if all of this wasn't horrifying and concerning enough, a series of WhatsApp messages were uncovered. Some were between Wayne Cousins and his colleagues, but many more were between officers in general, where the contents were disgusting and degrading. When I mean disgusting and degrading, let me read one out to you so you understand how horrifying the contents are. Trigger warning, there's some horrific language within these WhatsApp messages and I'm not going to hold back so you understand the enormity of the language used. Officer 1, I fucking need to take my bird out. Won't see her until next Saturday. Then I have to work. Promised to take her out on Friday, making it up to her from when I backhanded her. Officer 2, grab her by the pussy. Officer 1, you ever slapped your missus? It makes them love you more. Seriously, since I did that, she won't leave me alone. Now I know why these daft cunts are getting murdered by their spastic boyfriends. Knock her bird about and she will love you. Human nature. They're biologically programmed to like that shit. Officer 2. LMAO, which means laughing my ass off. Officer 1. I'm right though. And in another exchange, a male officer sent a string of messages to a female colleague. I would happily rape you. If I was single, I would actually hate fuck you. If I was single, I would happily chloroform you. This is just two of many WhatsApp messages that were uncovered. One police officer within these messages was even referred to as McRapey Raperson. And now it makes sense. All of it. If this is the standard for their own behaviour, then there's no chance of them taking it seriously in others. This is how Sally's husband was only charged with damaging a table. And in the case of Holly, officers did not take her being stalked and harassed by Ben seriously. In fact, officers immediately became pally-pally with him. Is this why certain officers immediately find a camaraderie with alleged abusers? Do you remember, in series 1, episode 10, when I spoke of Kira's story, and when the officer said, Look, mate, I've got a missus too, but you've got to try not to hit them. Well, when I've been on training courses, I have been accused of making these case studies up. 
and some professionals say, that wouldn't happen, the police wouldn't do this. All these WhatsApp messages between serving officers show different, and this isn't about vindicating me. It's about really driving it home that the sectors we rely on to keep victim survivors safe, the police, court administration, have a really bad workplace culture, aided and abetted by inefficient senior management. And the one thing I would say, believe advocates when they're saying that the family courts are not fit for purpose. Ignoring all the early warning signs of bad workplace culture while practising ineffective management is not just happening with the police and it is important to use this as an essential precursor to understanding the potential dangers that are waiting to happen at the hands of the family court if mismanagement at a senior level is not tackled soon. The potential dangers waiting to happen at the hands of the family court. And once again, referencing the police, we saw what happened when it came to the murders of sisters Bieber Henry and Nicole Smallman. These two murders happened eight months before Sarah's murder, and although it was covered in the media, but it gained more traction when conversations opened up about the police's overall conduct after the events at Sarah Everard's vigil. For those who may not be aware of the case, I'll just give you a quick background. Sisters Nicole Smallman and Bieber Henry were murdered in a park when celebrating Nicole's birthday. After other guests had gone home, they stayed on in the park to keep celebrating. Both Bieber and Nicole were reported missing. However, the police took no action and inquiries were not made. No investigation took place as to their disappearance and a missing persons log was incorrectly closed. It was the sisters' family who set out to look for them and not the police. And it was Nicole's boyfriend who found their bodies. I can only imagine how harrowing that would be. And it's at this point you have to ask, is this what Cousins was expecting with Sarah Everard? That the police would not take it seriously? That the missing person's logbook would be closed? Inquiries would not be made? Because him being sloppy does not make any other sense. However, this is where the actions of two police officers left many people horrified and speechless. These two officers had been given the task of staying with the bodies and guarding them and protecting the cordoned off area until further arrangements could be made. Both these officers had taken selfies with the bodies and then shared them on WhatsApp groups with their colleagues. And what is unfathomable, and I'm sorry I keep using that word, there isn't one person. I know, who hasn't been rendered speechless at the thought of this when they heard about this, if they ever speak of this. So how the hell did two police officers think this was okay, when lay people can see this is a disgusting act? These were police officers. Where did such a disconnect come from? Both of them were experienced police officers and not overexcited 16-year-olds who saw their first dead bodies and thought, yeah, let me take pictures to show my mates what a billy big bollocks I am. There's a quote from Nicole and Bieber's mother, Mina Smallman, which to me sums it up. Those police officers felt so safe, so untouchable, that they felt they would take photographs with our murdered daughters. Those police officers dehumanised our children. And I want to concentrate on two things that Mina said felt so safe, 
so untouchable, and then went on to use the word dehumanised. In Sally's case, the security guard openly abused his power without fear. No fear of consequence, just like Wayne Cousins had no fear of consequence. Same as the officers who took selfies with Bieber and Nicole. Same as the court staff member who lied to a member of parliament. They felt so safe, so untouchable, because they knew full well nothing would happen, nothing would be looked into. And when cases like Sarah, Bieber and Nicole arise, upper management in these sectors start doing their shocking, shocking acting. And that's what it is, just acting. The warning signs are always there. It's just ineffective management that just brushes it off and keeps it well hidden. Now, if you're thinking, why is talking about the police relevant? What's that got to do with the courts? I don't see the connection. And yes, it may feel like I've just crowbarred all of this in out of context here, breaking the flow of where the episode was going. But I needed to talk in depth about recent events with the police for two reasons. Where, number one, without going into depth about the cases of Sarah, Bieber and Nicole, I wouldn't be able to make my point about workplace culture and how behaviour can spiral out of control when ineffective senior management does not have sufficient control. Number two, the cases of Sarah, Nicole and Bieber should provide ground-level understanding for future episodes when I get there, of how the police's attitudes affects their conduct, which then affect and influence the judge and the courts. As it goes without saying, third-party sectors, their attitudes and actions hold more weight in the family court than the person whose lived experience we're hearing about. And then, it naturally affects how court staff see victim survivors and then treat them pre-hearing. It's a case of, well... When the police don't think their stories hold merit, then they obviously must be lying. I'm not going to spend my time giving them a room. And that is how they will be treated from day one, from the moment they enter the court process. But for now, let's go back to drawing comparisons and see what senior court staff leading judiciary members can learn from senior police management. For many years, Many people had voiced concern over police culture and about the certain behaviours amongst officers and all those warnings were faced with scepticism. With some of the allegations it was, don't be so ridiculous, it's not that bad. Exactly the kind of comments I faced when I used to talk about the Hollies and the Kiras and the Sallies. We knew the police force was not perfect and I suppose a long time back I would have been like that. I knew the police force was not perfect and needed reform in many areas. But once Pandora's box was opened, post Sarah, Nicole and Bieber, many people, including me, even in the course of my work, would never have called it regarding how bad it turned out to be. The WhatsApp messages, domestic violence amongst officers being rife and not investigated, having sexual predator nicknames that were widely known and used. Officers accused of abuse not adequately investigated. Targeting and grooming vulnerable witnesses for sex. And what I'm noticing is that we are also being warned about the family courts. The same warnings as they were with the police. The same language that they were with the police. Rumours of corruption. Backhanders for dumping case paperwork. 
and secret meetings stroke conversations with judges outside the courtroom, deep-rooted prejudices influencing cases. All of these worries, warnings, fears have been circulating online for years, as it did with the police. And just because there's no reporting on the court, and therefore there's no accountability, that does not mean that some real concerning behaviours are not happening. Because they are. From a personal point of view, I truly believe if the family courts were allowed to be scrutinised, investigated independently, reporting restrictions on the press loosened so they can investigate properly, I personally fear what they will uncover. Do I fear that cases are discussed amongst staff and security? Yes, absolutely. Do I fear that vulnerable court users are spoken about in the most derogatory terms? Yes, absolutely. Do I believe how senior managers and the judiciary behave filters down to frontline staff and affects how they treat people? Yes, absolutely. Do I fear that there are inappropriate workplace WhatsApp chats? Yes, absolutely. Do I fear that there's something quite sinister behind the amount of cases where paperwork just conveniently goes missing? Yes, absolutely. Do I fear that corruption in all its forms is rife within the family courts? Absolutely. Now, if you were to ask me, do I think judgestrates are in WhatsApp conversations with court staff? Truthfully, I would say no. I don't think so. However, if this then turns out to be the case, then I, for one, will not be doing the whole shocking, shocking acting. My reaction will be, do you know what? Doesn't surprise me. And the one thing I do have to say, the time is coming for the family court because the voices asking for more transparency are getting louder and louder and are getting harder to ignore. And we need to start bracing ourselves. And honestly, whatever is happening in our family courts will make the Met's behaviour look like insignificant indiscretions by comparison. I believe our justice system will never recover. Because on the surface, the actual incident with the security guard may only seem like a little thing. And I'm not saying that this security guard is a murderer waiting to happen. Of course not. But what those in positions of power within the judiciary are not seeing is that this is a warning sign for what's to come. Senior court managers not identifying alarm bells in their current institutional and cultural behaviour means small incidents will eventually become significant out-of-control incidents. The voices advocating for change are not being taken seriously. They're just seen as making white noise. So, we're nearly at the end of what happens to an LIP victim-survivor pre-hearing or what they will unknowingly face. So much is stacked against them that once they're knocked over, they will never find their feet. It's so hard sometimes to just sit there and watch someone running head first and you know that the moment they turn the corner, they are going to smash into a brick wall. And then comes the next shock, the one no one ever expects, although we've touched upon it. Corruption. More accurately, how have we started to accept that all types of corruption occurring in the family courts has been normalised? I tried to talk to Mr Pro Bono Barrister. He had agreed to take on someone's case. And I was trying to explain to him everything that had occurred, everything that you have heard about, 
pre-hearing, and why it looked like she had given up, and it was so unfair when he turned around and said, Well, if she can't be bothered, why should I? Because she's given up. She's realised there is no justice, and on top of everything she has faced pre-hearing, she now has to face corruption. And Mr Pro Bono Barrister just guffawed, dismissing what I had just said. I'm sorry, but I have never seen any corruption in all the years I have been practising. Where is all this corruption you speak of? Where do I start? Memoirs of a Mackenzie Friend is sponsored by IamLIP.com. If you are struggling with any of the issues discussed in today's episode, please go to www.IamLIP.com where you can receive further information and help. Disclaimer. The stories mentioned in this episode are fictional accounts based on and adapted from real-life experiences. Due to the repetitive nature of the family court, any similarities to any other cases are purely coincidental.